Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just your goodness. We thank you for bringing us here together. And Lord, we pray in this time as we get into your word, we pray it will be your spirit that speaks to us, your spirit that stirs our hearts, not words of a person, but Lord, may your word speak. May you open our ears, our hearts, our minds to you. And we give this time to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, of course, uh, yesterday was uh, a big day. Yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the attacks in uh, New York, D.C., and of course, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. I remember like it was months ago. You know, I say months ago because my memory's not that great, so I barely remember anything from yesterday, so months, uh, it, it seems like it was not so long ago that those attacks occurred. Um, if you're like me, you watch, maybe you watch the show, I always watch one every year, and I, I watch it to always remember the price, the cost, the lessons learned of that day. And I'm always moved every time I watch it because in the midst of this devastation, this incredible tragedy, there exist countless stories of heroism. Whether it's the firefighters, law enforcement, or even the civilians who risk their own life to help save others. It it never, never fails to amaze me. Their, their lives truly represents living for a cause greater than your own self-preservation, right? That's something that we talked about last week, living for a cause greater than ourselves. If you're like me or many other people, you watch 9-11 or you remember those times or tragedies to the level of 9-11, many who've experienced it or watched it again for X amount of times, you may go away still questioning and wondering, God, why? Why did you allow this to happen? And of course, we don't need tragedies to the level of 9-11 to find ourselves asking that kind of question, right? God, why? Maybe... You fall in one or two categories or somewhere in between. On one hand, you have people who expect God to allow them to live their life, right? Expect God to allow you to make the choices you want to make. God, let me live the way I want. Let me make the choices I want. But when things and circumstances happen that are unexpected or it turns out not the way you want it, Negative consequences happen, and then you stand there and you question God again. You say, God, how can you let these things happen? So there's on one hand, you want God to allow you to make the choices you make, but then when things don't go the way you want, you question God. say, God, why is it like this? Why aren't you doing something? But on the other side, there's also people who truly, sincerely seek to live for God. 
They try to be faithful, they try to be obedient, they try to be pleasing to God, but still they find themselves in circumstances, maybe even beyond their control, that are difficult. They're struggling, there's hardship. And they're left wondering, God, why aren't you doing something now? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I been doing? Haven't I been enough? Why aren't you doing something? And so on both sides, maybe you fit in one or two categories or somewhere in between, we can all relate to circumstances where we find ourselves asking God, why are these things taking place? Maybe you've gone to the point where you struggled and you wrestled so much that you've gone to the point to ask, God, why do I even believe? Why do I even bother believing in you, Jesus, if my life is going to be like this? Well, if you find yourself today asking those why questions with God, I'm going to ask you for a moment to take a step back out of your circumstances to try to see things from a perspective. We've been looking at Paul's perspective the last few weeks in Philippians. We've been seeing his perspective on life and how that perspective has influenced how he lives his life, how he approaches ministry. But I want us, if we find ourselves in those times, in those moments of questioning and wondering and doubting, I want you to take a step back for a moment. I've mentioned to you, I I do puzzles, and sometimes that last puzzle with all the lines, there were some things like I was seeing lines, like going crazy, and I had to just take a step back. It's like, all right, I need to take a step back from the situation. Sometimes in our circumstances, you're caught up in a storm, and you're like, sometimes you just need to take a step out for a minute. Take a breather with the things that you're going with so that you can see things from a different perspective. So we've been seeing Paul's perspective, and specifically, Paul mentioning to the Philippians how they ought to see their life based on how he lives his own life. And Paul mentioned to the Philippians that they were not only blessed to believe in Jesus, but they were also blessed to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we talked about that last week. How that might be something very difficult for us to swallow, right? Like pills that are difficult to swallow or food that we don't like. It's hard to swallow. That idea that we may be called to suffer for Christ, but we're blessed for it. That's an honor. And that may be difficult, but if we swallow it, we may realize the blessings And if we're going to be honest, if we're going to take Paul's message that we see in Philippians to heart, we may have to overcome some mental hurdles. These hurdles may be difficult to accept because they're contrary to what's comfortable to us, right? Any of you do track? Any of you ever tried the hurdles? Like from a distance, the hurdles don't seem to be very high. But when you go to try to do the hurdles, they're a lot higher than you think. And when you're first learning, you run and you approach it, and then you get scared, and then you don't try to go over the hurdles. There are some things that are mental hurdles for us because they're hard to accept. They make us feel uncomfortable. 
but they may be the very truths in our life that we need to accept and, and, and embrace for us to overcome the different struggles that we are facing in our life. Those various circumstances that f- we find ourselves in asking God, why? Why are you allowing these things to take place? So I would suggest that we find ourselves, when we, if you find yourself asking God why, if you're stuck on these hurdles, let's see if we can overcome these mental hurdles. And the first mental hurdle I want us to look at is one that we've been looking at the last couple messages, and it's live for Jesus. That mental hurdle of living for Christ. Now I want you to say, I am not the boss. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, I am not the boss. I know some of you are sitting next to family. How many of you, when you said that, you felt a little bit uncomfortable? How about you parents, if you're sitting next to you, I see some parents sitting next to your kids. How many of you, when you turned to your child and you said that, you didn't say that very loudly? Yeah? I would tell you to say, you're not the boss either, but... That might get a little messy. That is a hard mental hurdle for us to overcome, to say, I am not the boss. Because if we're being honest, we like to live our life thinking that we are the boss. But when we come to Christ, we have to overcome this mental hurdle that I am no longer the boss of my life. And if we're honest, we never really were. None of us ever have complete autonomy over our life. We never have complete control over our life. We could try to do what we want to do, but nothing that happens is in fully our control. We're so dependent on everybody else and all the different factors in life. We're never truly in control, but we want to feel like we are. And that's really like the the original temptation when Satan wanted to be like God. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve, it's this desire to be like God. And that's the same temptation to us in so many different ways. We want to be like God. We want to be able to determine and control the different things in our life. So when you come to faith in Christ, this whole idea of living for Jesus may be difficult, but it's something we have to realize. That we're not just believing in Him, but we're saying, God, I am going to Release control over my life. Why? Because you are the almighty God. You are the source of all goodness. You are the source of all righteousness. You are the source of all justice, forgiveness, care, love. Not my desires. So when we saw the last couple of weeks when Paul saying to live as Christ, what does that mean? means that, look, we're going to trust God to dictate the standards of our life. The standards of how we are to uphold ourselves in different situations. God dictates that. God is going to define for us what is good and evil. God defines what is tolerable and intolerable. What is natural and unnatural. We say, God, I'm going to leave that to you. We're going to trust God to direct your life. 
our lives and decision-making. He may allow you to make decisions, but you're going to pray, God, may you direct my steps. May you direct my heart, that my heart is in line with your desire for me. And I'm going to trust that if I make a bad decision, you will guide me. And I'm going to, I'm going to listen when I feel you nudging me in a certain direction. We're going to trust God to deliver us from troubled times. We're going to trust Him that if troubled times hits your life, God, I am going to trust that you will deliver me through these troubled times. Paul continues to exhort the Philippians in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, we have addressed some of these concerns that Paul is making here back in Romans 12, so all the way back when we were outside, worshiping outside. Paul has addressed these concerns. And I've mentioned before, if you ever want to be students of the Word, one of the things you want to pay attention to is repeated themes. Right? How many of you have parents that they told you the same thing over and over again before you even got out of the house? Right? When they tell you that over and over again, what are they trying to emphasize? This is important, or I want you to see this as important. One of the rules of emphasis in Scripture, what you see, is that when there's repeated themes... That means we need to take, pay, pay attention to this, right? So Paul here, he uses a fourfold, fourfold clause. Say that real fast. Fourfold clause. Using parallel statements to emphasize the importance of this common theme for the church. In verse 1, he says, If therefore there is, what, any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion... Verse 2, make my joy complete by what? Here's some parallel themes. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul is trying to say very literally eloquently to try to say, look, this is important. We see the parallels here. Any encouragement of Christ, being of the same mind. If there's any consolation of love, maintain that same love. Any fellowship of the Spirit, be united in Spirit. Any affection and compassion, be intent on one purpose. What's Paul trying to say here? He's been saying all these things. He's been living out all these things. And he's saying, if you've gained anything from what I've said, if you've gleaned anything from what I've experienced, if you found any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Be this. Be united together. Have the same mind. 
Back in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, Paul prayed with joy for the brethren in Philippi. He told them, I pray with joy for you. And even in verse 25 of chapter 1, he talked about how he looked forward to remaining on earth. Why? For the progress and joy of faith for them. But here, Paul says, look, he appeals to them for the sake of his joy. Look, please help make my joy complete. The joy that I pray for you with, make it complete by being of the same mind having the same love, the same spirit, intent, having one purpose. He emphasized it in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he goes on to say, I may, so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul is saying this over and over and over again to the church. Be together. Have the same mind. Be united together. He pleads with them. Now, I read this over again because, look, we've been seeing this theme a lot, right? When we looked at Romans 12, we've been looking at it in Philippians, and you wonder, why is Paul stressing it so much? Then I thought about it. I thought, why does the church struggle with this so much. Think about it. I think perhaps the biggest failure in church, for the church, in church history, they have failed to do this. We as a church has failed to be united in Christ, in one mind, united in purpose. Think about all of church history. Look at all the denominations. Look at all the traditions. Look at all the different fractions that exist in the body of Christ that existed throughout church history. And I've wondered this. Why does a church struggle with this so much? Then this thought came to me. I thought, don't we struggle with this in the most important relationships in our life? I think about our marriage life our home, the relationships in the home, I think, don't we struggle with this very thing in our very homes? See, we take these, these Christian verses and passages, we easily relate it to you and I in the church setting, Christian setting, or our, our relationship with the secular world. But we find it harder to apply it into our very homes. And I think we fail to apply, uh, apply these very things to our homes to our very relationships that should matter the most to us, our marriage relationships, our husband and wife relationships, our parent-child relationships, our sibling relationships. Do we carry these things so it leads to the second mental hurdle in our life? Do we live to serve others? That mental hurdle, living to serve others. So again, let's take a step back from it. Let's take a step back out of the context of the church setting, this formal church setting. Let's apply these verses into our very homes. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Now, what Paul's saying here isn't means that we have to mindlessly think the same way or do the same things exactly the same way. But his emphasis here is unity, an inward attitude of the mind, a same standard of love, this being one soul together. Think as one mind. The emphasis is on unity here. So let me ask us, let's get a little personal here. Parents, does your relationship as husband and wife, as father and mother, reflect this kind and level of unity? Do you share a common foundational standard of unity in attitude, in love, your soul, your purpose? Do your children, do your children see that you two are united together? You have the same level of commitment. They're united. Or do your children know mom and dad have different standards? Right? When children know that mom and dad have different standards, what do we do as kids? We weigh who will be more lenient than the other, right? Doesn't that happen? When my kids ask me something, you know what my immediate thought is? Why are they asking me and not Jamie? (laughs) Did you ask your mom? What did she say? That doesn't always happen, but that happens every now and then. We have all been there, right? They play off each other, right? Moms and dads, we know this. This happens. But are you both united together? If you have not had those kinds of discussions as a couple as a husband and wife, and as a father and a mother, you need to do that. In fact, do that today. In fact, do that in your car on the ride home. And if your kids are there, shift it to the parental aspect. Talk about it as a family, that you have a shared set of value and purpose and faith and mindset that you want to uphold as a family together. Because our children, they are watching. Right, moms and dads? They are watching. We, parents, we can't guarantee what our kids are going to grow up and what they're going to do. A couple of, couple of you all, you're going off to college, and you're scaring your parents. Not what you're doing, literally. But the fact is, at that stage in life, parents, we have to see our kids make decisions on their own. And we have no guarantee that they're going to live in the way that we hope them to do, that we try to teach them to do. Can't guarantee it. But what you can guarantee is that you lay down a model, an example for them. Men, fathers here, husbands here, you are a model of what it means to be a man for your sons and for your daughters. The image that they have of a man started at birth and it started with you. How you are to your wife 
How you are to your children is a model and learning experience for them when they grow up. And they will either learn to resent it or accept it and seek it. Likewise, women, you moms, you wives, you are the example of a woman of God to your children, to your husbands. And they're going to either want to model it and seek it out or resent it. You can't control it. You don't know whether they will or not, but at least you've set that example, and you are going to be that, and we need to have that. We need to start it here in the homes. He goes on and says, do nothing, in verse 3, do nothing. Again, these parallel thoughts. Notice how Paul parallels these thoughts for emphasis. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not, another word, and then he emphasizes it again. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, I'm going to address married adults and the parents in this room and who's watching right now. Singles, if you're single here, whether you're young or you're older, feel free to apply this to your context, right? How much of your expectations for your spouse are based on satisfying your own needs. I'll say that again. How much of your expectations of your spouse is based on how they satisfy your own needs? And if you're single, you can apply that to anybody in your life. The expectations you have of others is based on how well they satisfy your own needs. Because everything Paul is addressing doesn't just limit to certain contexts, but it's universal to all of us in all the different aspects of our life. Now, I remember, how many of you remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? I, I remember that. I remember when I first fell in love with Jamie. I fell in love with her because of the effect she had on me, right? Couldn't stop thinking about her. I wanted to be wherever she was. She didn't know it, but you know... I kind of low-key stalked her, not really, but I knew where she was. I don't know if she knows that. She's watching now. Hi. But we first fall in love because the effect they have on us. Love starts kind of selfishly, right? It's what they can do for us, how they make us feel. But when you get married or the relationship furthers on, what happens? That love needs to mature. It grows. It doesn't stay that way. The mentality now changes, not what you do for me, but what I do for you. And see, a common problem in marriages and in relationships is that that love never matures. It still stays what you do for me and what you don't do for me. So you have two sides who are not looking to serve each other, but they're waiting for their needs to be met. Children, you're not exempt from this either. Life does not revolve around you. Does that sound a little harsh? I remember... Literally, when I was thinking about this message, I literally remember a moment when I was a kid 
that I realize life does not revolve around me. You know what that moment was? TV. It's like when you turn off the TV, it's almost like, you know, if you're not watching it, it's not happening. But when you realize, even though you're not experiencing something, there's life all around you. People are experiencing their own life and has nothing to do with you. It dawns on you, wait, life is going on outside of me? I literally had an epiphany moment as a little kid. I realized this. But you see, that's a difficult lesson for us to learn, and some adults still haven't learned that. There are still adults who think that life revolves around them. But as a kid, something that I regret, something I failed to do when I was younger, I failed to consider the well-being of my parents growing up. I didn't even really consider that. I didn't see them as people who had needs. Do you you realize that? Do you know your parents are people too? (laughs) And your people have needs? I know they may try to portray like they don't have needs, but they actually have needs. They actually have things that they're going through. And I wasn't concerned about that growing up. What do they need from me? How can me as a kid help my parents? You might say when you're younger, oh, wait, they're the adults. They're the parents. They're supposed to take care of us kids, right? But we're not exempt from that standard, no matter how young you are. Your parents are more than just ATMs. They're more than just line cooks, right? They're more than an alarm clock. They're more than lecturers, They're more than your Uber driver. And parents, you have to make sure you're more than that to your kids, right? You're more than just the cook, the wallet, the driver, the lecturer. And you think, well, what about us single people or unmarried people? This is the same attitude. This is the baseline standard we ought to have. This is our calling for all of us, no matter what context we're in, as believers in Christ. There's a change. We're living for Christ, and we're living to serve others. Here's the third mental hurdle. Don't be surprised by suffering in your life. If you find yourself in struggling times, hardship times, you're wondering, God, why? Third mental hurdle you need to overcome. Don't be surprised by suffering in your life. I want to distinguish two kinds of suffering. There's the kind of suffering that you experience because of a direct result of your faith in Christ. You're being ridiculed. Receiving hardship. The enemy's coming down on you, whatever it may be. Your faith in Christ is causing you hardship. That's one. But then there's a second kind of hardship that's universal to all of us, and that's called life. See, we think that because we become Christians, we're immune to struggles. We're immune to the difficult things in life. And the reality is, it does, our faith doesn't keep us immune to struggles, to hardship. There are consequences to our actions. We may receive consequences from someone else's actions. But one thing we learn from Paul, 
Paul had a hopeful expectation of his release, right? We saw that in chapter 1. He was convinced. Look at in verse 25 of 1. He says, and convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves, what? In a worthy manner, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm. See, for Paul, he was convinced that he would be released. But he left that door open and said, but if I remain absent. See, Paul, it shows us it's okay to have a hopeful, faithful expectation that God would intervene on our behalf. That's okay. We can do that. We should exercise that. However, we should also be willing to accept that God's intervention may not look the way we desire it to look. It may not happen the way we want it to. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. There are struggles that we all experience that's common to all of us. That is life. Fourth mental hurdle, the last mental hurdle. Cling to Jesus instead of running away. Can we cling to Jesus instead of running away? There we go. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. What's it saying here in Hebrews? What does it remind us? What did Paul lean on? That we have a Savior, we have a God who understands and sees us in our weaknesses, in our temptations, in our struggles. Do you have hurt? Jesus experienced hurt. He knows hurt. Do you feel betrayed? Jesus was betrayed, and he continues to be betrayed every day. Rejected? Yeah, Jesus understands what it feels like to be rejected. Denied? Yeah, he was denied. He knows. He understands us. He understands our situations. He sees you in your struggle. So why do we experience these things? Well, if we're being honest, if we're truly taking a step back out of our context, if we're being honest, we really don't cling to the Lord as tightly when things are going smoothly. I don't know if that's true with you. It's certainly true with me. We don't cling to the Lord as tightly when things are going good. We don't rely on Him. 
when things are going well. We tend to be more independent. We tend to try to be more independent of God than dependent of God. Right? Aren't we all, if we're honest with ourselves? But if you've experienced struggle and hardship, and if you truly try to cling to the Lord, those moments may be the moments that you have been the closest with God. You have been the most dependent, oops, sorry about that, dependent on the Lord. You have been on your knees before God. When circumstances may seem horrific, God is still working. I'll end with this. I don't know how many of you know this. Prior to 9-11, there was a section, a lone section of the Pentagon that was in the process of renovation. Just one section of the Pentagon. And this one wedge was being retrofitted to withstand a terrorist attack. And before 9-11, it was five days away from being finished before the terrorist attack occurred. It was said that an estimated 800 people were working in the section of the wedge of the Pentagon where the impact occurred that morning of September 11th, which was far fewer than normal. Because if it was complete and is fully open, there would have been some 5,000, 4,500 employees working in that section alone. But since it wasn't complete, a fraction of that, of those people were there. The terrorists, as we know, the plane hit the Pentagon. And of all places in the Pentagon, it hit that one section, that one wedge that was retrofitted to withstand a terrorist attack. And because it hit that section, all five floors, the top floors from second to fifth floor, was able to hold up an extra 30 minutes for people to be evacuated safely. It's called the miracle of the Pentagon. God, and you, if you watch and hear of the stories in Island, in the midst of the tra- tragedy, there are so many stories, miraculous stories of God's intervention. And you may say, well, why was it 800 people working there? Why, why this? Why that? And I'm going to be honest. What is the dividing line between God's intervention and allowing the, con- the free consequences of people's actions? What's that dividing line? The answer to that dividing line lies in God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. And I'll be honest to say, I don't know. We don't know. That dividing line between when God intervenes and how he intervenes for one and the other, I don't know. We cannot fathom. But it brings us back to those mental hurdles. If we can take these mental hurdles and make them truths in our life, we will be better equipped to handle those situations that we find ourselves in. If we can say, Jesus, I am going to live for you, meaning I am going to trust you, 
I'm going to trust you in the circumstances. I'm going to trust you to lead me and give me the standard which I'm to live. I'm going to try to live for others, left self-serving. Look at the needs of my husband, of my wife, of my children, my co-worker, my brother, my sister. Yes, your brother and sister too. I'm not going to be surprised by suffering in my life, but I'm going to cling to you, Jesus, instead of running away. I'm not going to run away from the first sign of struggle. I'm not going to run away and abandon, but God, I'm going to trust you. Can you help me in the midst of my circumstance? I believe you will see God carry you through. And whether the circumstances end up the way you hope it to, the way you foresee it, or maybe your redemption is on the other side of eternity, God will bless you. God sees you. And he hears you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Before we take this challenge by Paul and try to apply it as a church and apply it to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ outside our homes, Lord, I truly believe that we need to make it a priority to practice in our homes with our loved ones with our husbands, with our wives, with our sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents. May we have this desire. May this be our base, our standard for how we live our life. That it will no longer be hurdles, but we'd embrace it as truths in our life. We give this to you, Lord Jesus, and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.